Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Chapter 10, The Legend of Hermes. The next part of The Legend of the Craft, which claims our attention, is that which relates to Hermes, who is said to have found one of the pillars erected by the sons of Lamech, and to have given to mankind the sciences written on it. This story may, for distinction, be called The Legend of Hermes. The name Hermes has suffered cruel mangling from the hands of the copyists in the different manuscripts. In the Dowland manuscript, it is Hermes. In the Lansdowne, Hermeneris, in York, Hermarines, and in the Sloan, 3848, Hermines and Hermines, who was afterwards called Hermes. And worst, and most ugly of it all, is in the Harleian, Hermaxmes. But they all evidently refer to the celebrated Hermes Trismegistus, or the thrice great Hermes. The Cook manuscript, from which the story in the later manuscripts is derived, spells the name correctly and adds, on the authority of the Polychronicon, that while Hermes found one of the pillars, Pythagoras discovered the other. Pythagoras is not mentioned in any of the later manuscripts, and we first find him referred to as a founder in masonry in the questionable manuscript of Leland, which fact will, perhaps, furnish another argument against the authority or standing of that document. As to Hermes, the legend is not altogether without some historical support. Although the story is in the legend mythical, but of that kind which belongs to the historical myth. He was said to be the son of Taut, or Thoth, whom the Egyptians made a god and placed his image besides those of Osiris and Isis. To him they credited the invention of letters, as well as of all the sciences, and they esteemed him as the founder of their religious rites. Hodges says in a note on a passage of Sanconiathan, the Phoenician historian, that Thoth was an Egyptian deity of the second order. The Greco-Roman mythology identified him with Hermes or Mercury. He was reputed to be the inventor of writing, the patron deity of learning, the scribe of the gods, in which capacity he is represented signing the sentences on the souls of the dead. Some more recent writers have supposed that Hermes was the symbol of divine intelligence and the pattern for Plato's Logos. Manetho, the Egyptian priest and historian who lived about 300 years before Christ, as quoted by Syncellus, mentions three beings called Hermes by the Egyptians. The first, or Hermes Trismegistus, had, before the flood, written on pillars, the history of all the sciences. The second, the son of Agathodemon, translated the precepts of the first, and the third, who is supposed to also be named Thoth, was the advisor of the god and goddess Osiris and Isis. But the three were later confounded and fused into one, Hermes Trismegistus. He was always understood by the philosophers to symbolize or represent the birth, the progress, and the perfection of human sciences. He was thus considered as a type of supreme being. Through him, man was elevated and in touch with the gods. The Egyptians credited him with writing 36,525 books on all kinds of knowledge. 
But this harvest of authorship has been explained as meaning the whole scientific and religious information collected by the Egyptian priests and preserved in their temples. Under the title of Hermetic Books, several works falsely credited to Hermes, but written most probably by the Neoplatonists, are still extant and were thought to be of great authority up to the 16th century. It was a tradition very generally accepted in former times that this Hermes engraved his knowledge of the sciences on tables or pillars of stone, and this information was afterward copied into books. Manetho credits to him the invention of stille, or pillars, on which were inscribed the principles of the sciences. And Jamblichus says that when Plato and Pythagoras had read the inscriptions on these columns, they formed their philosophy. Hermes was, in fact, an Egyptian lawgiver and priest. Thirty-six books on philosophy and theology and six on medicine are said to have been written by him, but they are all lost, if they ever existed. The question, indeed, of his own existence has been regarded by modern scholars as extremely mythical. The alchemists, however, adopted him as their patron. Hence, alchemy is called the hermetic science, and thus we get hermetic masonry and hermetic rites. At the time of the first appearance of the legend of the craft, the opinion that Hermes was the inventor of all the sciences, and among them, of course, geometry and architecture, was everywhere accepted as true, even by the learned. It is not, therefore, strange that the old Masons, who must have been familiar with the Hermetic myth, received it as something worthy to be put into the early history of the craft, nor that they should have adopted him, as they did Euclid, as one of the founders of the science of Freemasonry. The idea must, however, have sprung up in the 15th century, as it is first mentioned in the Cook Manuscript. The next important point that occurs in the legend of the craft is its reference to the Tower of Babel, and this will, therefore, be the subject of further study. Chapter 11, The Tower of Babel. Unlike the legend of Hermes, the story of the Tower of Babel appears in the Hallowell poem, which shows that the legend was the common property of the various writers of these old manuscripts. In the second of the two poems, which, as we have seen, are united in one manuscript, the legend of Babel, or Babylon, is thus given. Ye mau hear as ye do read, that many years after, for gret dread, that Noe's flood was all Iran, the tower of Babylon was begun. Also plain work of lime and stone, as any mon should take upon. Seven mile the hate shadoweth the sun, King Nabuchodonosor let it make, to gret strength for Mona's sake. Thag such a flood again should come, o'er the work height should not gnome. For they had so high pride with strange bost, all that work therefore was he lost. An angle smote him so with diverse speech, that never one wist what other should reach. So there's a few footnotes here. We'll see how those tie in with some of the other words in this poem. So the line, that Noe's flood was all Iran, uh, the footnote says, rain, Anglo-Saxon renon to rain, so they're translating that sentence as, that Noah's flood would still rain. The line that says, to grit strength for Monus' sake, Monus is men's sake. The line, over the work, height should not gnome. It says, get, should not get over the work or cover it. And then, that never one wist what other should reach. 
That one says that one could never understand what another should say. The statements of this Hallowell legend are very limited, nor is it possible to say with any certainty whence the writer derived his details. From neither the book of Genesis, nor Barosus, nor Josephus could he have got the information which is given its peculiar form to the legend. The mistake of making Nebuchadnezzar, who lived about 16 centuries after the event, the builder of the tower, is worthy of notice. It would appear that the writer of the poem had a general acquaintance with the well-known tradition of Babel, and that in loosely giving an account of it, he confused the time and place of the erection and the supposed name of the builder. At all events, the subsequent Masonic legendists did not accept the Hallowell writer as authority, or, more probably, they did not know his poem. It did not have any influence over the later manuscripts. The next time that the Babel legend appears is in the Cook manuscript, written a century after the Hallowell. The legend, as there given, is in the following words. It is written in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, how that Cam, Noah's son, gate Nimbroth, and he wax a mighty man upon the earth, and he wax a strong man like a giant, and he was a great king, and the beginning of his kingdom was the true kingdom of Babylon, and Eric and Arkad and Callan and the Lord of Senair. And this same Cam he gan the tower of Babylon, and he taught to his workmen the craft of measure, and he had with him many masons, more than forty thousand, and he loud and cherished them well, and hit is written in Polychronicon, and in the Master of Stories, and in other stories, Mo, and this apart witnessed the Bible in the same tenth chapter, where he saith that Asher was nigh kin to Nemroth, Ged went out of the Lund of Senair, and he builded the city Nineveh, and Plateus, and other Mo. Thus he saith, De terra illa et de senere egressus est asur et effaviet, nunivin et platius civitates et cale et aesu quoque inter nunivin et haec est civitas magna. Reason would require that we should tell openly how and in what manner that the charges of masoncraft was first founded and who gave first the name to hit of masonry. And ye shall know well that it is told and written in Polychronicon and in Methodist Episcopus, and Martris that Acer, that was a worthy lord of Senair, send to Nembroth the king to send him masons and workmen of craft that might help him to make his city that he was and will to make. And Nembroth send him three thousand of masons, and when they should go, he send them forth, and he called him for them before him. And say to him, Ye must go to my cousin Asher to help him build a city. But look that ye be well governed, and I shall give you a charge profitable for you and me. And they received the charge of him that was here, master, and her lord, and went forth to Asher, and build the city of Nunivah in the country of Plateus and other cities Mo, that men call Kali and Aesin, that is a great city by Twain, Kale, and Nunivah. And in this manner the craft of masonry was first preferred, or brought to the front, and charged for a science. We next meet with the legend in the later manuscripts, in a form differing but little from that of the Cook manuscript. The Dowland and early manuscript constitutions, and the date of which is probably about the year 1550, has already been printed in this work. But for the convenience of the reader in comparing the three forms of the legend, so much of it as refers to the Babel legend is here inserted. 
It is in these words, which it may be remarked, are very closely followed by all the later manuscripts up to the beginning of the 18th century. At the making of the Tower of Babylon, there was masonry first made much of, and the king of Babylon that hate Nimroth was a mason himself, and loved well the science as it is said with masters of histories. And when the city of Nineveh and other cities of the east should be made, Nimroth, the king of Babylon, sent thither threescore masons at the rogation, which is a formal request, of the king of Nineveh, his cousin. And when he sent them forth, he gave them a charge in this manner, and this was the first time that ever masons had any charge of his science. In comparing the three forms of the Babylonish legend which have been here cited, namely as given in the Hallowell, the Cook, and the Dowland manuscripts, we shall readily detect that there was a gradual growth of the details until the legend finally took the shape for which a long time was accepted by the craft. In the Hallowell poem, the legend is very brief, and by its sudden end would impress the opinion upon the reader that masonry had no part in the building of the Tower of Babel, the only effect of which was to produce a confusion of languages and the spreading out of mankind. It was only many years after that the craft of geometry or masonry was taught by Euclid. In fact, the whole tendency of the Hallowell legend is to trace the origin of masonry to Euclid and the Egyptians. In his account of the Tower of Babel, the writer of the Hallowell poem seems to have been indebted only to the scriptural narrative, although he has mixed up Nebuchadnezzar, the repairer of Babylon, with Nimrod, its founder. But the writer of the Cook Manuscript took his details of the legend from another source. Only a few years before the writing of this manuscript, Caxton had published, and thus placed in the hands of the English Freemasons, Trevisa's translation of Ranulf Higdon's Polychronicon, or Universal History. Of this book, rich in legend materials, the writer of the Cook Manuscript readily availed himself. This he honestly acknowledges in several places. And although he quotes as other authorities, Herodotus, Josephus, and Methodius, it is very evident that he knows nothing of these historians except from the quotations from them made by the monk Higdon in the Polychronicon. The English Freemasons were probably already acquainted with the legend in the imperfect form in which it was given in the Hallowell poem. But for the shape which it assumed from time of the writing of the Cook Manuscript, and which was adopted in the Dowland and all later manuscripts, the craft were undoubtedly indebted to the Polychronicon of the Monk of Chester, through its translation by Trevisa and its publication by Caxton. There are two other forms of the Babylonian legend of later date which must be read before we can thoroughly understand the growth of that legend. In 1723, Anderson published by authority of the Grand Lodge of England the Constitutions of the Freemasons. Dr. Anderson was no doubt in possession of or had access to many sources of information in the way of old manuscripts which have since been lost, and with these, assisted in some measure by his own inventive genius, he has extended the brief legend of the craft to 34 quarto pages. But as this work was of an official character, and was written and published under the authority of the Grand Lodge, and freely distributed among the lodges and Freemasons of the time, the form of the legend adopted by him was accepted by the fraternity for a very long period as trustworthy. The Andersonian legend of the Tower of Babel molded, therefore, the belief in the English craft for at least the whole of the 18th century. Before dealing with the Andersonian version of the legend, it will be necessary to refer to another copy of the old constitutions. Dr. Krauss, the author of a learned Masonic work entitled The Three Oldest Documents of the Brotherhood of Freemasons, published in that work in 1810 a German translation of a document which he calls the York Constitutions. Of this document, Krauss gives the following account. 
He says that Brother Scheider of Altenburg had a letter from Brother Butker, who stated that in the year 1799, he had seen at London a copy of the York Constitutions in a very old manuscript, consisting of 107 leaves in large folio, almost one-third of which he had been unable to read because it was written in the early English language, and there he was forced to employ a learned Englishman to get at its meaning. Schneider made diligent inquiries after this manuscript, and at last received a certified Latin translation made in 1806, from which, in 1808, he prepared a German copy. This document, Krauss supposes to be a genuine copy of the Constitutions enacted at York in the year 926. The original manuscript has, however, never been found. It is not referred to in any of the records of the old Grand Lodge of York, and seems to have remained hidden until the 1799, when seen by this brother Butker while on a visit to London. For these reasons, Findel thinks it's a forged document. Brother Woodford did not agree with this opinion, but having his doubts, thinks the matter should wait for further proofs of its truth. Brother Hugen believes that the resemblance shows it to have been made up from Dr. Anderson's writings, or his writings borrowed from that source. At all events, it is not a document of the year 926. No original of it has been found, no reference to it has been traced to York, and it is not mentioned by Drake or any historian of that city. When the reader compares the extracts here given from Anderson's Constitutions and the Krauss manuscript, he will agree that either Anderson had seen the latter manuscript or that the author of it was familiar with the work of Anderson. The similar ideas, the placing together of certain words, and the use of particular phrases must lead to the conclusion that one of the two writers was acquainted with the work of the other. Which was the earlier document is not easily determined, nor is it important, since they were almost of the same time, and therefore they both show what was the form assumed by the legend in the early part of the 18th century. The Anderson version of the Babylonian legend is as follows. About 101 years after the flood, we find a vast number of them, the offspring of the sons of Noah, if not the whole race of Noah, in the Vale of Shinar, employed in building a city and large tower, in order to make themselves a name and to prevent their dispersion. And though they carried on the work to a monstrous height, and by their vanity provoked God to confound their devices by confounding their speech, which occasioned their dispersion, yet their skill in masonry is not the less to be celebrated, having spent above fifty-three years in that prodigious work, and upon their dispersion carried the mighty knowledge with them into distant parts, where they found the good use of it in the settlement of their kingdoms, commonwealths, and dynasties. And though afterwards it was lost in most parts of the earth, it was easily preserved in Shinar and Assyria, where Nimrod, the founder of that monarchy, after the dispersion, built many splendid cities, as Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in Shinar, from whence afterwards he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Kela, and Rezin. In these parts, upon the Tigris and the Euphrates, afterwards flourished many learned priests and mathematicians, known by the names of Chaldees and Magi, who preserved the good science geometry, as the kings and great men encouraged the royal art. The Krauss manuscript, or the reputed York Constitutions, gives the Babylonian legend as follows. Two generations after Noah, his descendants, proud of their knowledge, built on a plain in the land of Shinar a great city and a high tower of lime, stones, and wood, in order that they might dwell together under the laws which their ancestor Noah had made known, and that the names of Noah's descendants might be preserved for all time. 
This arrogance, however, did not please the Lord in heaven, the lover of humility. Therefore he caused a confusion of their speech before the tower was finished, and scattered them in many uninhabited lands, whither they brought with them their laws and arts, and then founded kingdoms and principalities, as the holy books often testify. Nimrod, in particular, built a town of considerable size, but Noah's son Shem remained in Ur, in the land of the Chaldeans, and propagated a knowledge of all the arts and sciences abroad, and taught also Peleg, Sereg, Nahor, Terah, and Abraham, the last of whom knew all the sciences, and had knowledge, and continued to instruct the sons of freeborn men. Whence afterwards the numerous learned priests and mathematicians who have been known under the name of the wise Chaldeans. We have now five different documents presenting three forms of the legend of the Tower of Babel. 1. The Hallowell Poem. This legend briefly tells of events at the building of the tower and the later halt of the work by the confusion of tongues and the separation of the builders. Confusing the periods of time, Nebuchadnezzar is said to be the king over the builders. Not a word is said about the institution of masonry at that time. In fact, the theory of the Hallowell Manuscript seems rather to be that masonry was, many years after, taught for the first time in Egypt by Euclid. The form of the legend was never accepted by the operative masons of the guild, certainly not after the end of the 15th century. The Cook and Later Manuscripts, number two. This form of the legend puts the origin of masonry at the time of the building of the tower. Nimrod is made the Grand Master and makes the first charge, that is, frames the first constitution that the Freemasons ever had. Asher, the son of Shem, is also represented as a great mason, the builder of the city of Nineveh, and to whom Nimrod sent workmen to assist him. From Babylon, masonry was carried next to Egypt. This form of the legend, first presented in the Cook Manuscript and followed almost word for word in the Dowland and later manuscript constitutions, seems to have been the general belief of the fraternity until about the end of the 17th or the beginning of the 18th century. Number three, the Andersonian and the York Constitutions. In these, the form of the legend is greatly improved. The idea that masonry was first given a leading place and proper laws at the Tower of Babel under the control of Nimrod is still preserved. But Asher no longer appears as a builder of cities, assisted by his cousin, but is changed, and correctly too, into the kingdom of Assyria, where Nimrod himself built Nineveh and other cities. And the next appearance of masonry is said to be not in Egypt as in earlier manuscripts, but where it was taught after the builders separated by the Magi in the land of the Chaldeans. This form of the legend prevailed during perhaps the whole of the 18th century. It became the belief of the Masons of that period that masonry was instituted at the Tower of Babel by Nimrod and then spread to the Chaldeans. Thus, in Smith's Use and Abuse of Freemasonry, published in 1783, it is said that after the flood, the Masons were first called Noekari, and afterwards sages or wise men, Chaldeans, etc., and Northrick, who, in 1784, by order of the Grand Lodge, published an edition of the Constitutions far superior to that of Anderson, says that Nimrod founded the Empire of Babylon, and that under him flourished those learned mathematicians whose successors were styled magi or wise men. But about the end of the 18th century, or perhaps a little later, this legendary account of the origin of Freemasonry began to be cast aside, and another one, in denial of the old manuscripts, was put in its place. Freemasonry was no longer believed to have begun at the Tower of Babel. The Temple of Jerusalem was accepted as the place of its birth, and Solomon, and not Nimrod, was called the first Grand Master. Accepting this legend, as we do the other legends of masonry, which, in the language of Oliver, are entitled to consideration, though their authenticity may be denied and their aid rejected, 
We say that at the present day, the Babylonish legend has assumed the following form. Before the flood, there was a system of religious instruction, which, from the resemblance of its legendary and symbolic character to that of Freemasonry, has been called by some authors antediluvian masonry. This system was preserved by Noah, and after the deluge was taught by him to his family and followers. Then it was lost at the time of the dispersion of mankind, and corrupted by the pagans in their mysteries. But later on it was purified, and Freemasonry, as we now have it, was organized by the king of Israel at the time of the building of the temple. This idea is well exemplified in the American ritual. While some of the ritual has become imperfect or even lost from the necessarily imperfect mouth-to-ear teaching, yet it is clear that the candidate is one who is traveling from the mental blindness of the profane world into the brightness of Freemasonry, where he expects to find the light and truth, the search for which is represented by his initiation. This symbolic journey is supposed to begin at the Tower of Babel, where in the old ritualistic story, language was confounded and masonry lost, and to end at the Temple of Solomon, where language was restored and masonry found. According to this latest form of the legend, the Tower of Babel is cast down from the leading place which was given to it of the old as the birthplace of Freemasonry, and becomes merely the symbol of the darkness and ignorance of the profane world as compared with the light and knowledge to be obtained from an initiation into the system of speculative Freemasonry. But the old Freemasons who framed the legend of the craft were conforming more than these modern ritualists to the truth of history when they gave to Babylon the glory of being the original source of the sciences. So far from its being a place of mental darkness, we learn from the cuneiform inscriptions that the ancient Babylonians and their copyists, the Assyrians, had a wonderful literature. From the ruins of Babylon, Nineveh, and other ancient cities of the plain of Shinar, tablets of terracotta have been dug up, inscribed with legends in cuneiform characters. The meaning of this once unknown alphabet and the use of the language has yielded to the genius and the labors of such scholars as Grotefind, Bota, Layard, and Rawlinson. From the fragments found at Koyanik, the modern Arabic name for the site of Nineveh, George Smith estimated that there were in the Royal Library at Nineveh over 10,000 inscribed tablets, including almost every subject in ancient literature, all of which literature was borrowed by the Assyrians from Babylonian sources. Speaking of this literature, Smith says that at an early period in Babylonian history, a great literary development took place, and numerous works were produced which embodied the prevailing myths, religion, and science of that day. Written, many of them, in a noble style of poetry, and appealing to the strongest feelings of the people on one side, or registering the highest efforts of their science on the other, these texts became the standards for Babylonian literature, and later generations were content to copy these writings instead of making new works for themselves. We see, therefore, that the Freemasons of the present day are wrong when they make Babel or Babylon the symbol of mental darkness, and that there the light of masonry was for a time extinguished to be relit only at the Temple of Solomon. And again, the legend of the craft defends its character and correctly clothes a historical fact in symbolic language when it shows Babylonia, which was undoubtedly the fountain of all Semitic science and architecture, as also the birthplace of operative Freemasonry. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.